You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today we've got Mike Adams, who is a three-time founder. And right now he's working on a company called Grain, which is funny because I have a company called Single Grain. So co-founder CEO of Grain, a SaaS platform that records, transcribes, and shares highlights of Zoom video calls. Previously sold a company to WeWork and he's got one of his other businesses still operating right now. And then he's got Grain right now. So welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, happy to uh, be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. So first things first, I mean, let's talk about this space right now because I mean, as far as I know, I mean, there's a couple of companies that will do kind of the recording transcribing thing. What makes Grain, actually, before I ask this question, tell us about your story around how it led up to Grain. Let's start with that. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been in tech for about 10 years. First eight were focused on kind of the transition from first into first job, typically from college, but increasingly over that time, finding alternatives to even having to go to college at all. So my second company that we sold to WeWork two years ago, we built an online school built fully on the back of Zoom. So we built a Zoom school in 2016, four years before the pandemic. And I learned just a huge amount, just a few years, probably before the vast majority about how powerful of experiences you can have online and that there had been kind of a paradigm shift from, well, it has to be in person to develop these relationships or have a consistent connection. And we built entire 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. programs built on Zoom. And so we had built some software just with our own Zoom API token to manage our recordings. And so we wanted to give access to the students. We wanted to give access to the admissions interviews and make more data-driven decisions, our all hands to speed up efficiency in communications. And so when WeWork acquired the company, I knew I didn't want to work at WeWork for reasons that became obvious to everyone else about a year later. And so I just started Grain immediately out of that insight. And so one of the insights that makes us unique is that it really kind of came from a lecture in this online classroom to where we would attach the Zoom chat log to the recording and then synchronize the timestamps of the chat log to the point in the recording when someone typed a note or a chat. And I started to see people take notes in the chat and like leave themselves like timestamped notes. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, why are you guys doing this? And it gave me the insight that real time is absolutely critical for knowledge retention, for knowledge storing, for knowledge management. And we spend all day in these conversations and we don't have tools that are designed to take advantage of the linear nature of a recording and the thought processing that we do in the middle of a conversation. And so with that insight, we built a product around kind of these timestamped notes that would bring you back to the moment in the recording. So we spent about a year focused on really just that insight. We built like a Google Doc type of thing where it would like have Google Docs, but it would bring in your Zoom recording afterwards. And then it would be a timestamp next to the notes that you took. That was kind of it. Both the collection layer and the presentation layer were the same. And so we realized that what people really wanted to do with those timestamps was actually just create little ch- chunky highlights. I don't want to necessarily point you to a timestamp in a giant recording. I just want to pull that part out that I want to share, have it live independently, manage the recording permissions, et cetera, separately, and then share that. And so the last year plus of Grain has been really focused on this insight of kind of giving people this ability to annotate information in real time, and then make it dead simple to share specific pieces and parts out of the conversation instead of 
having to even have a pointer to a spot in the big giant thing. Got it. So what would be an example use case of grain just so people can wrap their head around it? Yeah. Our killer use case has been any interview setting. One of the reasons why is because you're free to listen, you're free to type, and the direction of information flow is from some subject outside of you, who's typically the grain user, the Zoom host, the person who's in control of the recording. And you're free to be able to provide these annotations, be able to save yourself time. There's a huge number of workflows to where it's totally normal already to record, to kind of analyze, and to be able to split that up and to share it in either individual parts or recombining into a larger story. So those interview settings, so in particular, like customer discovery and product teams has been killer for us. Hiring interviews has been really awesome so that people don't have to repeat themselves. One of the things we do at Grain and other teams do is we get really tactical about making sure that each person in the interview process asks different questions. And then we share the answers that the candidate gave And so then we get a way broader view of what the candidate said instead of just everybody going in and repeating themselves because they don't have visibility into what the previous conversation was. And so that has been really a pretty killer use case for us. Another one that's been really, really nice is consultants, especially for onboarding clients, and then being able to share the information in the actual voice or in the actual words of what the client says that they want with the people who are actually executing in service to that client. And so oftentimes there's some business owner who is doing the sales, doing the onboarding, doing the relationship management. And then there's some other team involved in the execution of that. And then the last use case is just general team knowledge and understanding. Like for example, internally at Grain and amongst a lot of other teams, we record every single meeting. I've actually recorded every meeting for the last five years. Every single conversation that I've been in that I possibly can record, I record because it's data to me. And so we have that philosophy throughout our company. So you don't have to attend any meetings that you don't want to attend. You just know that it's going to get recorded and you know you're going to get access to it. And ideally, that's been compressed down into a smaller, more chunkable form for you to not have to spend the full length of time to watch it, but you can get an hour-long meeting in five minutes. Got it. And so... If I'm interviewing someone right now, let's say there's a panel of people or maybe there's multiple processes, is the idea here that they can look at the transcript and they can look at the highlights. So we can have, you know, interviewer one, interviewer two, interviewer three, they're kind of highlighting different portions and then we can just pull it up. Is that kind of the main benefit here? Because what I'm trying to compare this to, we talked about there's a sales enablement tool that we use that transcribes and allows you to highlight. I'm trying to figure out what really separates the two. Totally. We think of the gong use case and the grain use case as two sides of the same coin. Either way, you're trying to understand the content and information that was in a conversation. The differences is in gong or in any sales enablement tool. You tend to be doing a lot of talking, tend to be doing a lot of the sales piece, and there's not a lot of time to take notes, to annotate in real time. And whereas in grain, it's more in that listening setting as opposed to a talking setting to where you are free to annotate, you are free to kind of add your understanding in the moment to this artifact that gets generated afterwards. And so the gong and chorus world tends to rely a lot on very verticalized AI to bring to surface the insights 
you weren't involved oftentimes. You basically are never involved in identifying what was important or what was said during the, the meeting. Whereas in the interview setting, you are absolutely free to be able to provide annotations, to be able to provide you know, your own insights and breadcrumbs back to those important moments yourself. So instead of relying on AI because you're too busy talking, you can rely on yourself because you're really free to listen. Got it. Yeah. So I'm looking at the How It Works page right now. So it seems like you highlight a section and it'll just pull up to that the video at that very specific spot. And that's the key thing, right? And then people can hit play over there. I mean, that's the key thing, right? Now I'm kind of getting it. Yeah, totally. So we also have a whole bunch of just different embeddable partners. So for example, we deeply integrate with Slack. And so our team and many other teams, we have what we call a voice of the customer channel. So it's a requirement that anybody who talks to a customer that they post at least two video clips of what the customer has said, what their needs are, what their concerns are, what their joys and happiness are. So we're getting just this basically channel of new content every day inside of Slack that everybody on the team gets access to instead of just the people who are in the conversation. And so we're not asking people to be like, oh, go rewatch this entire 45 minute long interview. It's just like, just check out this 30 second juicy clip where they said that the only reason they still use Zoom is because they have grain. Like that was a highlight clip I had the other day that we really loved. And I like sent it in an iMessage to my investors. We sent it around because it was just like this really juicy moment that if you don't capture it, you have no way of even sharing that at all. So recording is a prerequisite, but then grain is what enables you to make use of that recording. Instead of those juicy moments being trapped in a big giant monolith, maybe there was some sensitive information. Maybe there's a whole bunch of reasons why you wouldn't want to share an entire recording. And the last thing you want to do is download a multi-gigabyte file, upload it in the iMovie, and then cut a clip out, throw it on a Google Drive link, and then share it with your team. So grain just streamlines that video editing in just seconds instead of hours. To your point, I mean, it's you're really looking for the key takeaways from a customer development call or even if you're interviewing someone, right? Because now it's like they don't have to dig through your applicant tracking system to look for every single note. They can just like, oh, okay, what core questions do we ask? And let's make sure we're not repeating the same questions, right? Because that is a problem when it comes to remote hiring in the first place. By the way, I'm looking at the site right now. So what other integrations do you have? I'm seeing Slack. Are you doing Zapier, Envision, Asana as well? Yeah, so we're about to release a Zapier integration to where you can set it up so that any highlights that you make in grain can go and be routed to specific destinations. One of the other main ones that we have is a bunch of the document tool suite. So we just finished an integration with Dropbox Paper. We've worked with Notion for a really long time. It works in Coda. Um, It works inside of Miro. And when I say it works, what I mean is that when you paste the link to the video, just the 30 seconds that you want to share, it's embeddable inside of that other context. So someone doesn't have to like click on the link and go you know, watch it in a browser right there inside of the Notion doc, right there inside of Slack, right there inside of Miro. You just click the play button and you're able to experience that media to enrich the overall narrative of whatever the document's trying to convey. So for example, we have this meeting every week called customer empathy meeting to where our customer facing team is cutting up these clips like, all day because it's just second nature because it's what we do. And then that becomes data that as we have this empathy meeting saying, everybody's been requesting this specific feature. And instead of it being this like super ambiguous qualitative thing, like everybody's been requesting it, really everybody. Instead, it's like, no, literally here are eight clips of different people from different ICPs that are asking for this exact same feature. 
And it's just absolutely game changing in terms of teams being able to like gain alignment. And so, like I mentioned, there's the Slack kind of voice of the customer where it's more like a TV channel. And then there's these notion docs where it tends to be a little bit more aggregated around topics or themes. And either way, it's playable inside of the tools that you already use. Got it. I love that. And so how does the business make money? And then what kind of numbers can you share around the business today? Yeah, sure. So we make money through subscriptions. And so we're a freemium product. You can just sign up for Grain. You can create a workspace. You can invite your team. You can get set up. We provide uh, five free transcripts per month. And so you can use it on five meetings every month. And for some people, it's totally fine. And then they ramp up their usage as they realize that the value of recording is so much greater. And so then we have subscription plans where you can pay for 30 transcripts per month, and that's $15 paid monthly. And the unlimited plan is $45 paid monthly. Then there's a 20% discount if you pay annually. Got it. I love that. And so, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. I'm surprised more people haven't talked about this. I mean, the use case is just like a duh, right? So I want to come back to Mission U. So with Mission U, with Grain, you guys raised about $4 bucks according to Crunchbase, and then Mission U about $11 bucks. Why did you decide it was a good time to exit Mission U? Because I actually remember hearing about you guys before. I guess maybe the price was too good. I don't know, right? So walk us through kind of what was going on there. Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of times what happens in the world of tech is there's, you know, buzzy headlines and kind of PR angles to make things look great. And I've got a million asset managers reaching out to me after the acquisition and I didn't actually make any money on it. And so I could pretend like, you know, oh, I got like super rich from this acquisition. It was a great thing. It wasn't necessarily something that I wanted. It was, if anybody has followed the WeWork saga, they can understand the nature of the CEO and the way that he operated. And it was very non-conventional. And so, yeah, basically the acquisition kind of took place fairly unrelated to the actual business itself. They shut it down almost immediately after it was working great. Like our students were getting awesome jobs. And I actually recently hired one of our Mission U students and she's amazing. She's just like unreal. She was awesome before Mission U and she learned the skills in data analytics went and worked at a company as a data analyst for a couple of years and just is an absolutely phenomenal hire for us. So the company was working. Unit economics in that business are really, really hard. Anytime you have like a human in the loop or many humans in the loop in this case, I mean, this is a human services business at the end of the day. And my takeaways and learnings were that not every VC-backed business is appropriately VC-backed. The pressures and timelines associated with VC outcomes and returns with a services business where you have human beings and you have to kind of scale a fairly unrepeatable process. We leveraged as much technology as we possibly could, but especially when you're dealing with like younger people and low income and different demographics of people that are not necessarily as privileged as a lot of people that are going to college. Like you are just introducing a huge human element that isn't very scalable. And so when we looked at the long-term destination, we were one of the first people to do the income share agreements and to popularize them. I have a lot of things that I think there's great about the income sharing agreement in terms of access. There's also a lot of skeletons in the income share agreement closet to where there's challenges to make the incentives aligned there. So we ended up actually just forgiving the income share agreements of every Uh single one of our students in the acquisition. And then a few people went over to basically be part of the education department at WeWork. And I had no interest in that. Not only no interest. I actually wasn't even offered a position there. I think partially because I wasn't really buying into the WeWork way of doing things and I wanted to keep operating the business. And so I just started a new company instead. Got it. So can you walk us through however much you're willing to share? I mean, why did you get no payout? Because I mean, 
how long did you work on Mission U? Two years. Got it. So what happened there? At the end of the day, the CEO of WeWork was very determined to hire people by any means necessary. And so I actually had a tweet about this that went viral. I ended up deleting it. So I'm fairly sensitive to kind of like rehash it because it's kind of been a piece of my life that's been moved on. But the point is, is that it was disconnected from the business in any capacity. It was really just about hiring someone that he wanted to run a department that was not me. And the business was kind of just collateral damage in the process. And so Uh, it could be positioned as, oh, it's an acquisition, whatever else. It closes down the business. You know, they immediately closed down the business. We forgave our income share agreements. We just finished teaching out our students to help them to get jobs. And there was no alignment between what we had built and the acquisition itself. And so originally the deals never start that way. Deals always start where they're like, oh my gosh, like you're going to have this great outcome. There's going to be amazing alignment. They wanted to have a mission you and every WeWork around the world. I don't know if that was ever really the intent, but what ended up happening is more what I'm describing. And there was no more mission you after that, which was devastating to me because I spent two years of my life and it yeah. was working it was absolutely serving groups of people that need this pathway. We yeah. were getting 19-year-olds out of college jobs as data scientists at Spotify. Granted, yeah. they're already very brilliant people. But we helped to kind of facilitate a channel to get them that dream destination. So 90% of our students would have done Mission You again, given the opportunity, even a year later when we asked them. And yeah. so anyway, that's kind of how the acquisition went down. So it was an amazing learning experience for me to where now I won't entertain even for a second, some sort of acquisition scenario, unless I'm absolutely convinced that that is the right thing. Because as soon as we went down that path, we were kind of tantalized by all these numbers that were throwing out that were way more money than ended up being in the end, because they Mm -hmm. basically just kind of like changed the deal at the last second. It was a distraction to where it kind of put us in a vulnerable position to where a deal happened that just was not very optimal. Got it. Yeah. I want to talk about the and thanks for being vulnerable. I mean, the income share agreement piece, because we had Austin Allred on this podcast talk about Lambda yeah. School. And, you know, I remember asking him, I was like, okay, so how does this all work? Because you guys raised a ton of money. He's like, look, at the end of the day, income share agreements to see it to fruition, probably it's like a five-year journey, right? So you have to hold out for a very long time. So here's what we're planning to do with my podcast, Marketing School. We do want to have an income yeah. share agreement component to it. I don't mind the long game, but I'm like, you just mentioned skeletons in the closet. So it seems like there's a lot of landmines everywhere. Financiers make the money on income share agreements at the end of the day. It's a vehicle of providing access to education and training as an alternative to a loan because you don't have to come up with a lot of money. Oftentimes they get collateralized and securitized and kind of bundled together and sold off. And so the entity that is providing the service can get that cash flow up front. But in order to be able to do that, you're giving away a huge amount of those future cash flows, right? And so what ends up happening is these financiers see it as a major opportunity because they're getting an income stream over, say, it's supposed to be three years or two years, depending on the school of the program. And sometimes if they don't get a job right away, but they get a job later, then that still qualifies as an outcome. I know Austin pretty well. He's a really, really good guy. I think that he has a tremendous amount of integrity and is doing absolutely everything he can to serve people. And so the income share agreement is there's no such thing as a silver bullet to where everything, you know, you can't have everything without any trade-offs to where it's all good and it's no bad. I would say net income share agreements are a very valuable and useful tool. What I would like to see, and part of this is just because of their newness, not necessarily people's intention of trying to be deceivious or 
hiding the details, although it is in the best interest to kind of sometimes hide the details of how these things work, is that they're just new and that people don't necessarily know how they work. And the more transparency associated with the income share agreement and really knowing what's involved in that, I think is going to be beneficial to the future health of income share agreements and generally access to educational training opportunities. Got it. Knowing what you know now, would you ever do an income share agreement type of business again? I'm too tired. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, before Mission U, I was at Hack Reactor, one of the first coding boot camps and schools. And oh, you've done a lot of this. There yeah. So I've been in that space for a long time. And it was in education, my first company before that. And so education is my life passion. Like I love it. I care about it. I try to do it more channeled through mentorship and advisory now as opposed to like formal programming and lecturing and teaching, but it is a very, very challenging business. And so if you look across where the money is made in education, generally it's financing and administration. It's not in the actual act of teaching, generally speaking, the actual act of teaching, unless you are creating online courses, unless you're you know using some Teachable or on Udemy or something like that, then you actually get a convergence of the educator getting the lion's share of the money because there was just some platform involved like a Udemy that brought you a whole bunch of students and they take their cut, but you don't have a financier component because the price is so small. And so when you get these big sticker priced types of programs, they can be absolutely transformative. I went through Hacker Actor myself. I got a job as a software engineer at OpenTable. I had a degree in economics. Like I never would have been able to become a software engineer, which has been huge for my career as a founder, were it not for this three-month, super intense, 10 hours a day program. And it's expensive. It's super expensive. And so it makes sense why financiers are involved in these programs because they work, because there is a high sticker price. But generally speaking, a lot of the money ends up going to the people who have the capital in the first place and can help to facilitate to make it happen. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like loans make the world go round. Like people buy houses because they don't have the money, but then they get to live in the house and they pay it off over 30 years. It's kind of the same idea, whether it's a loan for education or whether it's income share agreements for education, as long as the program itself, the quality of it gets you to an outcome that can give you a return on investment. And there's transparency in the ecosystem around what your actual expected outcome is. Income share agreements all day long, like loans all day long, as long as they're aligned to outcomes where you get really, really dicey is when you've got things like FAFSA, the government student loan program, going to for-profit institutions like University of Phoenix. I'm sure University of Phoenix has helped a huge number of people to improve their lives, like an absurd volume, but their overall aggregate stats are not exactly encouraging to the quality on average of what one can expect by taking out a huge massive loan. So what's challenging in this is oftentimes there isn't a requirement for sophistication amongst the borrower to understand the contract that they're getting into and the obligation and also the expected outcome. And the programs and institutions oftentimes aren't as transparent as they could or should or need to be into what those are. Last quick aside on this is in the early days of the coding bootcamp industry, every single program claimed 98% job placement. I don't know if you remember these days, but it was like every single program. And I know for a fact that the biggest program out of New York that ended up getting acquired by some recruiting agency, I think. What was it? Was it Flatiron School? Flatiron's great. It was General Assembly. So like General Assembly was claiming that a year past everybody else that they had 98% and they never had 98%. Like they were never 
one of the top tier programs. I'm sure they helped a lot of people to get a lot of great outcomes and a lot of different programs. But my point is, is just that they were, I would say, at least in my time in that space, amongst the least transparent actors. And even the best programs in the space continued to say the best version of what a student could expect, even if it wasn't the most accurate. And so what's been good, I think, in this industry, and it's been kind of just a forcing function of the market, is more transparency, but still not to where it necessarily needs to be. Got it. Do you think we're going to see a multi-billion dollar outcome for an income share agreement type of thing in the future? Maybe the financing company behind it. (laughs) (laughs) So not the teaching company. It's a hard business. Honestly, I would love, love, love. I would say if I could put my money on anybody, it would be Lambda School. I think that they have a lot of amazing people and they've been doing a lot of really great work. They've gotten better and better over time. And it's a challenging business. It's an absolutely challenging business. And I don't know, maybe they're already there. I don't even know. Maybe they've reached a billion dollar valuation, but I look at the education services space and you look at the publicly traded companies and I think there's to you basically is it to you bought the ones that partner with the extension schools just to borrow the brand. They bought them for like $750 million. And I don't think it was necessarily worth that in my personal opinion, but you just look at the end destination, the end outcome. And there's really just to you and what makes to you float it's government loans at the end of the day. And so again, if you can tap into the like FAFSA programs and the fact that in education, you're always competing against government loans for the most part. This money is just freely available for the most part. And there's no accountability or ties to the institutions that as long as you meet these arbitrary set of criteria that you're accredited and approved. And so an innovative company in this space is competing against these non-free market factors, right? And so it makes it that much more challenging on top of the services business. And so I don't know. I would say that if I had higher hopes for the industry in terms of it being a VC backable space, I probably would have maybe fought harder to not sell. But given what I had learned in the two years of building that business and that the outcome was kind of played out in front of me, and I had the opportunity to create a business that was clearly going to be in a growing market with you know recordings around Zoom and knowledge management based on the experience that I had at Mission U, it made a lot of sense for that career move for me. So I don't have exact answers, but I think that all I can say is it's a really, really challenging industry that I just grew as hard as I was trying, just really, really tired <laughs> within. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. So working towards wrapping up here, I mean, pre-show, we talked about how you do triathlons, right? Your mind has to be wired a certain way to put yourself through this pain. So tell us what's going on. <laughs> how did you even get yourself to that point and tell people what a triathlon actually is? Sure. So I have not yet done a triathlon. I signed up for my first half Ironman in February of 2020. (laughs) And then Ironman doesn't refund your fees, even when they don't hold the event. And so it was supposed to be in Santa Cruz in September of last year. And that definitely didn't happen. So I was training, hoping that it wouldn't get canceled because we were all hoping like we'd go back to normal as soon as COVID hit. And I just started to really enjoy the endorphins that were associated with the triathlon, which is so like a half Ironman, which is the one that I signed up for is like 1.2 miles of swimming, which usually takes about 35 minutes, a 56 mile bike ride, which usually takes about three hours if you're in good form. And then a half uh, marathon, which is a little less than two hours if you're running on decent legs after the bike. And I have run a marathon in the past and I lost a ton of weight. 
And so my main motivation was just like, Hey, I'm getting a little pudgy. <laughs> like I need to lose some weight. I need to feel healthy. I need these you know, endorphins as I'm running this startup. And the best way I do that I found in the past is to sign up for a race. So I just signed up for a half Ironman. And then when it got canceled, I didn't stop training. And then I ended up actually signing up for full Ironman this summer. And so I've been loving the training. I've been doing it socially with friends that are going to be in the same events at the same time as me. And it's something that I've really come to just like love and enjoy. I mean, it's fun. It's also the fact that you said you signed up for something. So it forces you into doing it. Right. So I think that's a key thing because my personality is like, it's not that I'm courageous. I just want to get it out of the way. So once you sign up for something, you're stuck with it. Right. And now I've developed this habit to where this is just what I do. I get up in the morning and I run and I get up and I look at my calendar and I have this, my world is so crazy and there's 4,000 priorities. And every day I could do one of 50 high urgency things. And what I like about the training is that I can just look at a calendar and I go run for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it says. And I do it at the pace and the tempo. And then I do it on Strava and then I track and I see all my stats and I get all of my like kudos on Strava. And I have really enjoyed kind of developing the habit to where it's now just something that I do. So I can't imagine going back to a world. I'll probably take a break for a little while where I won't do it with the same intensity, but I feel like I've almost unlocked a cheat code for healthy living that works for me. I love it. All right. Two rapid fire questions before we wrap up. What would be your favorite business tool not called grain? Yeah, I would say obviously Zoom is cheating. (laughs) I've been using Rome more and more lately. And one of the things that I love about it is its ability to easily draw relationships across instances of recurring patterns, if that makes sense. So like you talk to the same person a bunch of different times. And if you take your notes in Rome or you augment them with something like grain, you're able to see what you said and talked about last time without having to like go dig through a bunch of different notes. And so generally speaking, I think search is a terrible means of finding old information, but if relationship hierarchies are well-structured from the beginning, it becomes absurdly easy to be able to see patterns and information over time. And so that's been a product that I've been getting to use more and more lately. And it's really helped me to just organize my thinking and organize the information that I bring in and process every day as a knowledge worker. I use Rome all the time. I have all these note-taking apps that I now pay for. It's like Notions for this, Rome's for this, Evernote's for this. And I'm sure you're the same too. So final question, what is one must-read business book or your favorite business book before we go? Yeah. So I am a product-centered founder and first-time CEO. So three times founder, first-time CEO. My first two times as co-founder, I've been very product-centric. And so my recommendation is a product book. It's called Inspired by Marty Kagan. He was one of the first product managers, I think really ever, kind of defining the concept of a product manager. He was at eBay in the early days. And he's done amazing work to be able to codify in that book the right way to build products you know, recognizing that there's these inconvenient truths in the product building process about how our ideas aren't always right. And then if I had to chase it with another book in this space, it would be The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. And The Mom Test just is a great way of being able to kind of gut check whether or not you're leading the witness when you're talking to people and trying to understand the market. You know, finding product market fit is just an absolute slog. It is brutal and it's made better when you have better process associated with it and you collect better data along the way. Cool. All right, Mike, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? 
My email is just mike at grain.co and you can shoot me an email and I'm pretty responsive, generally speaking. And I blog on my personal blog at mgadams.com. And I write about product. I write about some of the education stuff in the past. And I'm usually like a once a quarter type of blogger. So that's a good way to find me. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks so much for doing this, Mike. Hey, it was great to uh, be on it. Thanks a lot, Eric. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.